Well, we're going to start a four-part series today called What You Need to Know About the World. And this first sermon in that series is titled God Is. I want to, I want to talk about four different things that you need to know about the world. The first being that God is. You see, the things that have transpired in our society and in our world across, across the globe over the past six months have sort of shaken our existence, have shaken the world that we live in. Things that were settled and things that were certain and things that we depended upon, have, have, it's, it's, it's as if someone took a snow globe and shook the world up and things have really gone off the rails in a lot of different directions. You know, many of us have gone through personal times of shaking in the past. You know, whether it was the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one or a health crisis, we've gone through personal times of, of crisis. But even in those personal times of crisis, there's some sense of comfort in the fact that the world continues to go on as it always went on. And we recognize that the crisis we're experiencing is, is, is personal, that it's not global. This is perhaps the first time, I, well, this is definitely the first time in my lifetime where the shaking that is happening is not just personal, but it's global. And the things that we would normally reach out for and look towards that kind of stabilize us during times of, of personal difficulty are themselves being shaken. That has created a bit of an existential crisis. We're being told that there's no going back to normal, that there's only a new normal. Some, some are not interested in going back to the way things were. There are people who are looking for change, perhaps even upheaval, a new way of operating, a new way of existing in this world. And theories and conspiracies about what's going on abound, and people are, are, are latching on to all kinds of ideas, and racial tensions are exploding. There's huge, dramatic changes taking place in our world. So what I want to do the next four weeks is I want to ground us as Christians. And now when I say as Christians, I am perfectly aware that there are people in this room who don't identify themselves as Christians, who don't believe the, uh, the, the things that we necessarily believe. But I want to just come from that perspective as, uh, of assuming that we are Christians. And if you aren't a Christian, I hope that you'll become one as, as you see God's great plan revealed. As Christians, there are some things that we need to be grounded in. We need to understand that God is in control. We need to understand that God has a plan. And so the next four weeks, I want to talk about God, creation, the world that we live in, how it came to be and for what reason it exists, sin and how that impacts the world that we're in, and ultimately salvation. So God, creation, sin, and salvation. That's where we'll spend the next four weeks. And we'll do that by looking not only at John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 18, which will be our text, our main text for the next four weeks. So I encourage you to read that and reread it and just spend time thinking and, and meditating and, and being in John chapter 1. But we'll not only look at John chapter 1, but we'll look at the rest of Scripture and what it has to say about those four things, God, creation, sin, and salvation. My hope is at the end of those four weeks, the anxiety that we feel won't completely dissipate, but we'll come back to being grounded in what God is doing and who he is and what his plan is for his creation and the part that we have to play so much so that 
even though everything around us may be shaking and going crazy and off the rails, we know what we're supposed to be doing. And we know who we are and we know who God is and we know what our mission in this world is. That's my goal. So as we look at those verses again, I'm not going to reread 1 through 18, but if you have a Bible, stay open to one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We see a lot of things about God. God is what? God is, but God is what? Well, there's a lot of things. Let me just highlight a few of them as I, as I just quickly go through this passage. We see in verses 3 and 4, God is the giver of life. He's the one who gives life. We see in verse 6 that God sends. He sends people to accomplish his mission. We see in verses 9 and 14 that God himself goes. He not only sends, but he goes. Verse 10 tells us he is often not recognized. Verse 11 says he is often not received. Verse 12 tells us he is very generous to those who do receive him. Also that he adopts men and women as his own children. What an incredible thing to think about that mere mortals like us can become God's children in his family. Verse 14 tells us that he's full of grace and truth. One of the things that we'll look at, because we're, we're not going to stop in John after these four weeks. We're actually going to continue on in the gospel of John. That's where we'll be for the next few months. One of the th- and most important things we'll see is that, that God is full of grace and truth. He does not compromise one for the other, but that he beautifully weds the two together. Verse 15 tells us that he gives grace. Boy, that's really good to know. Verse 15 also tells us that he has witnesses. Verse 18 says he was unseen for a long time. These are all things, just, just in these few verses, look at how much we learn about God and who he is and what he's like and what he does. But there's four really big things mentioned in chapter one here about God that I want to focus on. And the reason I chose these four is because I really think there's a couple of things when, when either your personal world or the world at large is in crisis, there's a couple of important questions that I think we intuitively ask whether we, whether we are aware of it or not. And those questions are about God, and they go something like this. The first one is, is God able to do anything about this situation? Again, whether it's personal crisis or global crisis like we're in now, is God able? Can God do anything? Does he have the ability to change? Does he have the ability to fix what is broken in our world? And if he's able, the second question is, is he willing? In other words, does he care? Does he care enough to help? Does he want to use the power that he has, if he indeed has it, to help, to correct. And so those two questions, is God able and does God care? I think they're answered by the, the four things that I want to focus on, characteristics or attributes of God that are either explicitly stated or alluded to in this passage. They go like this. The first is this. If you have a handout, you can fill this in. God is eternal. He's eternal. This is asserted throughout the Bible, but there are a couple of allusions to it here in John chapter 1. In verse 1, in the beginning was the word. When? In the beginning. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, later on in this passage, we'll find out that the Word is Jesus. So you could even say here, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. But it says here, and very intentionally, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So God was there in the beginning. This is not explicitly stating that he's eternal, but certainly alluding to the idea that he must be eternal. If he's there in the beginning and presumably still here now, he's not like us. He doesn't live just a few short years. God is eternal. We see in verse 15 of our passage, it says this, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Well, that's not too earth-shattering. Okay, so Jesus is older than John. That's what he's saying. John the Baptist is saying, the one that comes after me uh, existed before me. Well, here's the thing that you need to know about the story of John's life and Jesus' life is that John was born before Jesus. Jesus didn't exist Before John, John existed before Jesus. He was conceived before Jesus, and he was born before Jesus, unless Jesus is eternal. And that's exactly what John is saying here. The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. So a couple of allusions in this passage to this idea of God being eternal. Let's look at Psalm 90. I like what Psalm 90, how, how Psalm 90 states this point. If we start in verse 1, I'll read, I'll read the first six verses. The psalmist says, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. He has been their refuge. In, he's existed and been a refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. You return mankind to the dust, saying, return, descendants of Adam, for in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. You end their lives, they sleep, they are like grass that grows in the morning, in the morning it sprouts and grows, but by evening it withers and dries up. This is our God. He's eternal. From eternity to eternity, a thousand years to him, that's like yesterday, Not really a big deal. It's just like a few hours in the night because he's eternal. Even before that psalm was written, back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God is having this conversation with Moses, and he's, he's wanting Moses to go and deliver his people, the Israelites. If you're familiar with the story, if you're not, not, not a big deal. Um, he's wanting Moses to go and deliver his people from slavery, and Moses is like, that's a great plan, but who am I going to tell them sent me? Because they're enslaved by the most powerful man and the most powerful empire on the earth at the time, the Egyptians. You want me to go get them out of Egypt, somebody more powerful than Pharaoh better be sending me. So who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? God replied to Moses, Exodus three fourteen. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. I am the eternal one. 
I am. God always is. He's eternally who he is. He, I am who I am, not I am who I used to be, not I am who I'm going to be, but always I am who I am. The God who, who is the same, as, as the New Testament tells us, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, the eternal God. Tell the Israelites and tell Pharaoh that the God from eternity has sent you. That's in the beginning of the Bible. The end of the Bible, if we turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, this is the way God introduces himself or explains himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, Alpha and Omega are the, the, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And that's representative of from beginning to end, for all time, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, God, the eternal God. Why do we need to know this? Why does this matter? We probably assume this. If you believe there's a God, you almost have to believe that he's eternal, right? I'm not telling you anything new. But I wanted to remind us in this time of global crisis. I wanted to remind us in this time of existential confusion even, God is eternal. Every moment is now for God. In some way, and here's where our finite brains are just extremely limited in trying to comprehend or apply this. But in some sense, God exists outside of time. That time, as we experience it, is actually something he created. And that he exists outside of that so that every moment is now. Whether it's 10,000 years ago or 10,000 years in the future, he is there. He is present and it is now for him. That means... That before God even created this world, he saw this moment in history. And he sees the moments that are to come, and he knows how this will end. And he knows, he knows what we are experiencing. And he's big enough to handle that. He's eternal. We are experiencing new things, unnerving things, but God is not. Think about that for a minute. He's not guessing what will happen next. Wandering. He's not, he's not got his fingers crossed like, oh man, this virus got out of control. Oh man, America's out of control. I hope this works out okay. You know, he's, he's not like hoping and wishing. He knows He's absolutely certain of what will happen. He's eternal. He doesn't have to wait for it to play out. He's already there. That should give us great comfort. When we understand everything else that the Bible reveals to us about God, that should give us great comfort. Okay, so the, one of the questions I asked is, can God, is he able Let's say that this, this point here puts a check mark beside yes. He's able. He's eternal. But let's continue on. 
Not only is God eternal, God is triune. This is something we don't talk about a lot. This is honestly something that um, doesn't come up a lot in sermons because it's just difficult to talk about. It. It's, it's actually impossible to even explain. I don't, e- I don't even know how, how, how to, to say this in a way that I can go home today and go, I bet that made sense to everybody. Because <laughs> it doesn't always make sense to me. But it's one of the important things, and I think that God wanted us to be reminded today that he is triune. There's a beauty of the idea that God is one God who exists in the form of three persons, and that all of them are fully God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we see two of those come up in a very significant way in our passage here in John chapter 1. In fact, this is going to be one of the major points of John's entire gospel. If you read through the Gospel of John, which, by the way, you can do so virtually. I mean, you certainly can do it in one sitting. I think you can do it fairly comfortably in one sitting. If you just, or maybe maybe even on your way to work, if you bring up an audio Bible uh, app, which those abound. If you need help finding one of those, let me know. Maybe on your way to work, you can just listen to the book of John being read to you as you drive. As you go through John, you're going to see that one of the things that John wants us to know is that God is God the Father, and that God the Son, Jesus, is God, and that God the Holy Spirit is God. He, he, this is one of the things that he drives home throughout his book, but we see even in the very first verses, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's quite a way to start a book. John said, I'm going to tell you about God. And one of the things I want you to know about God is that Jesus is God. He was with God in the beginning, he says in verse 2. All things were created through him. Who has the power to create things? God, only God. And apart from him was not one thing, not one thing was created that has been created. You cannot create anything without Jesus the Son. You can't create anything without him, nor did God even try. He was there. He was with God. He was God, and through him, everything was created. Next week, we'll talk about creation. And then he says in verse 14 of chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because if you're reading the first 13 verses for the first time, the question you should be asking is, who is this word? Because he doesn't come out and say, Jesus is with God. He says the word. So you should be asking yourself, who is the word? And then he says in verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace. And right then John's audience would go, the son, Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. Full of grace and truth. There's this pretty cool interchange Uh, In John chapter 8, verses 54 through 59, Jesus is interacting with the Jewish leaders and the Jewish scholars. And they're really baffled by the fact that this guy is doing all these miracles and he's claiming authority. And they're, they're wanting to get at the root of this. What's going on with this guy, Jesus? And Jesus says, and we're going to get into the middle of the conversation, so I apologize, but I don't want to take up a lot of time trying to give you the entire context. Jesus says uh, in verse 54, if I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. 
My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Okay, he just brought up Abraham. And here's Jesus, a couple thousand years after Abraham, saying, Your father Abraham, who they revered, who they respected, who they followed, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They go, wait a minute. Verse 57, the Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. What's he doing here? He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, as we would say. He says, I am. He's invoking the Old Testament name that God gave himself. He's saying, I'm God. And they understood that clearly. There, there are, ver, let's say, versions of Christianity and other world religions that would argue that Jesus is not God. And they would even say that Jesus never meant to claim that he was God, uh, which is completely ignorant of what the, the Gospels teach us. He says here, how do we know that they understood fully he was saying that he's God? Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. It was their practice when somebody blasphemed that they would immediately stone them to death. They understood fully that Jesus was saying, I'm God. You look to Abraham, Abraham looked to me. He rejoiced to see my day. So here we have, and we're going to see this again and again throughout the Gospel of John. John's answering the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this son that, that, that came? Who is he? He's going to say in a, a hundred different ways, he's God. That's because God is triune. God is triune. Here's, here's three orthodox statements of the Christian faith that we must under, uh, wrestle with and hold on to. One is that God is three persons. Two is that each person is fully God. And three, there is one God. That's the mystery of the Trinity, is that there aren't three gods that together those three persons are each fully God, yet there is one God. That's, that's where it gets tricky. And we don't have to understand that. I mean, there's plenty of people that try to help us understand that. They say, well, that's kind of like water. Water can be a liquid. It can be a gas. It can be frozen. There's just three different ways that water can exist. And I, that's, that's not terrible. That's helpful in a sense. It breaks down, of course, because we're not talking about water. We're talking about God, something far more mysterious than what we can understand uh, in the way that we understand water. But we must hold to this. The reason I bring this up today is we're answering these questions. Can God and does he want to? Does he care? Well, God demonstrates his power and his ability 
uniquely through each of the three members of the Trinity, and he demonstrates his care uniquely through each of the three members of the Trinity. And so in a sense, the, the idea of, of holding on to this view of God being triune answers both of those questions affirmatively in the yes, God can and God cares. Okay, let's keep moving. Third, God is good. He's eternal, he's triune, and he's good. Those first two, I mean, they're hard to get our heads around. Here's one that we can really latch on to. One that we can really hope in. God is good. There's two hints in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 at his goodness. The first is that in verse 4, he is light. And that light was the light of men. This idea of light versus darkness is the concept of good versus evil. Then the second is in verse 16. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. He is light. He's good. He gives grace. He's good. These are hints at his goodness. His goodness is going to become further displayed through the gospel of John, but it's, it's also a theme throughout the rest of Scripture. It's a pretty prominent theme, actually. In the Bible, we learn that God is good and does good. He's good in character. In fact, this, he's the standard of goodness. But he's also good in his activity, meaning that he does good things. The ultimate proof of God's goodness is what the Bible tells us in Romans 5, verses 8, that God proves his own love for us, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate act and display of God's goodness is that he sent his son to die in your place, aware of your worst moments, and aware of, of how, how rebellious you can even be towards his nature God didn't die for you because he saw you on your good day. He died for you. He sent Jesus, the son, to die for you because he sees you on your worst days. That, listen, I don't, there's nobody in this world that loves you because of your worst days. <laughs> People love the best version of you. And even if it's a version they don't often experience, it's one that they can conceive of in their minds. Guys, women marry us, not because they think we're awesome, because they think they can make us awesome. <laughs> God sends his son to die for us, seeing us at our worst. As Greg mentioned earlier, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He sent Jesus to die in our place. That's how we know he's good. But let me say a couple of things about God's goodness. Things that are really important to know. His goodness is best known by those who seek him. Because God's goodness is available to everybody. But you know what? In reality, a lot of people don't experience God's goodness. It would not take you long to leave this place today and find somebody who does not believe God is good. To find somebody who, who would just adamantly disagree with the idea or the concept that God is good. 
because they're not experiencing his goodness. So how do we experience his goodness? Well, his goodness is best known by those who seek him. That's the first thing. Let me show you that in Psalm 34. I apologize, this, these next couple of verses won't be on the screen, but you can just listen. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. His goodness is best known by those who seek him. When we seek him, he reveals himself to us. And when he reveals himself to us, we see his goodness. We taste it, we see it, we experience it. Secondly, the first being his goodness is best known by those who seek him. The second is this, his goodness is best known by those who receive him. It's one thing to seek him in terms of I want to know about God. It's another to receive him and to say I want to walk with God. And that's in our passage in John chapter 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. If you want to experience God's goodness, seek him and receive him. If you're not experiencing God's goodness, there can be a variety of reasons for that, but, but one of the places I would start first is I would ask myself, have, have I been seeking him? Do I truly want him? Do I desire him? Am I going after him? And have I received him? Have I welcomed him into my life? And then, then finally, on that, on that point, I would just want to say, you know, it's, it's not usually in the good times of life that we become convinced of God's goodness. When I have become most convinced of God's goodness has been the times when I've gone through the darkest valleys of my life. When things are going good, I'll be like, yeah, God is good, you know, things are good. Um... Hey, the weather's nice. I got a great house. I got a cool job. I got a boat, you know. <laughs> when things are going good, I'm like, yeah, God is good. But like, I don't know, it just feels superficial. It's when things get really hard. It's, it's when you kind of enter into those, those dark valleys of the soul. Where all of those things I just mentioned aren't doing it for you. They're not enough to get you through. It's when you find out your, your six-day-old daughter has a traumatic brain injury. It's, it's when you find out that your 19-year-old stepson is diagnosed with cancer. It's in those dark valleys of life that God really comes through and you become convinced of his goodness. It's not nice weather that convinces me that he's good. It's not having a few extra bucks in my bank account that convinces me he's good. It's when the world is coming down on me and he's there with me. That's when I know he's good. That's when I become convinced that God is able and that God cares because he's good. And I bet there's some, some believers in this room that would testify to the same thing. So you haven't been there yet. If you haven't experienced 
God's goodness. Seek him and receive him and then lean into him in those times when you need him most. And he will show you how good he really is. Let's move on, move on. God is eternal. God is triune. God is good. Then lastly, I want to talk about this for a few minutes before we close. God is glorious. He's glorious. One of the things that comes up immediately in, God, uh, in John's gospel and that comes up again and again. In fact, I'm trying to think. Uh, trying, what, I, what I do when I take a, a book of the Bible that we're getting ready to preach through is I read through it uh, as many times as I can, and then I try to um, start looking at what other people have said about different themes that are in the book. And, and I'm looking for, like, what are the main things that John wants us to, to take from his gospel? And each, each writer of every book of the Bible gives hints at those things. They, there's things that they reveal that, that show an emphasis. Just like when, if we were to sit down and write a paper for a class or something, there'd be certain things that we have in mind that we're like, we really want to drive this home. We really want people to hear this or people to know this. That's the same thing of each book of the Bible. And one of the things that I see in the book of John that just is so intriguing is this idea of glory. Jesus is always talking about glory in John's gospel. And he's talking about the Father's glory and the Father giving him glory. And we're like, what is this glory? We see it in, in verse, uh, verse 14 of chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. What does that mean? What does it mean? The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what is glory? I agree with John Piper. It's not easy to define, but he uses an illustration, an illustration that highlights the problem that doesn't alleviate it. <laughs> the, the illustration he uses is if you were to try to describe to somebody what a basketball was who's never seen a basketball, there's all kinds of things you could say. You could say, well, you know, it's about this big and it's round and then you fill it up with air and it bounces and they're usually made of like rubber or leather and you throw it, you know, you, you go up and down a court and you put it through a hoop and you pass it around. And, and like, if you've never seen a basketball, I think I could, I could describe it to you in a way that when you saw it, you go, oh, that's a basketball. I get it. Glory is not like that. How do you describe glory? It's like trying to describe beauty. What is beauty? How do I describe to you beauty? Well, it's, it's, it's things that are beautiful. It's hard to describe beauty. God's glory is, is it's his beauty. It's his holiness. It's his worth. It's his majesty. It's all of these things put on display and made visible. It's not a tangible thing, yet we can experience it almost in a tangible way. When you see something just really astonishing, what is, what is the most beautiful or glorious thing you've seen on this earth? Like something part of creation. If, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know the frustration of like coming back and trying to explain to people what it feels like to be at the Grand Canyon. If you've ever stood at the base of a tall mountain or climbed a mountain and looked down, if you've seen things that the rest of us haven't seen, you know that frustration. You're, you're like, you took pictures of it and you came back and you showed people pictures and they were like, wow. And you were like, no, 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 you don't understand. It was glorious. I felt it. I experienced it. I can't even describe it. So it is with God's glory. We don't always know how to put it into words, but when you see it, man, you see it. 
Isaiah saw it. In Isaiah chapter 6, he recounts seeing it. I love this passage of Scripture. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Now I'm trying to think. Let me pause there. I'm trying to think. Isaiah, the time of the prophets, Old Testament history. I don't know if anybody before Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. I could be wrong. Somebody could maybe remind me. I'm not making that statement. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to answer that question for myself. But he sees him. I saw the Lord. What did he see? He was seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. What does that mean? I mean, you couldn't... If you, you couldn't literally fill the temple with a piece of material, otherwise Isaiah would not have been able to get in there to see it. But the, the hem of his robe is indicative of his glory. It filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. That is wild, by the way. <laughs> That's crazy. And the one called to the, another Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the earth. Isaiah got this unique glimpse into the glory of God, and what he saw was that his glory was enough to fill the whole earth. In fact, it goes beyond that. It fills this whole universe. And And now we see glimpses of it. One day we'll see it in its totality. We'll see God in all of his glory. God is glorious. He's beautiful. He's majestic. He's worthy. He's holy. He's completely unique and separate from everything. And yet he comes to us. In fact, not only... I don't want to spoil next week because we're going to get into creation. Not only does he come to us, but he created this whole universe so that he could have relationship with us. John's going to tell us a lot about that glory as we go through this book. In sending Jesus to the earth, though, God purposefully chose to put his glory on display among men. This is who God is. He's eternal. Nothing new happening for him. He's not shaken. He's not worried. He's eternal. This isn't a big deal to him. It's a big deal to him because he cares about the people that he's affecting. I don't mean to say he's aloof. He doesn't care. But he's not scared or worried. or sh- He's eternal. He's just God. He is who he is and who he always was and who he always will be. And none of this will change that. If you need a, if you need a firm foundation to stand on right now, here it is. It's the God of John's gospel. It's the God of eternity. It's the God of the universe. He's triune. He reveals himself to us. He comes to us, Father, Son, and Spirit. I can't wait to talk about that in John because there's some amazing things that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit as we get later in in John's gospel. Um, He's good. And those who experience his goodness the most are the ones who seek him and receive him. 
And we need to understand that it's during our darkest times that we're most likely to be convinced, become convinced of his goodness. So don't be afraid of those times. And then he's glorious. He's worthy. One of the most appropriate things that we can do during this time is to worship him and to be in awe of him and to talk about him because he's worth that. He's a great and amazing God. And then in short, let me just answer those two questions that I started with by saying that he cares and he can. Can God help us get through this? Can God bring good out of this? Does he want to? Does he care that we're going through something? Yes and yes. That's the kind of God he is. He's real. He's eternal. He's triune. He's good. He's glorious. He's in control. Take comfort in him. Take refuge in him. Turn to him when the world is shaken and nothing stands. I will hold on to your hand like an old song. I want to ask the worship team to come back up and get ready as we go back into worship for a couple of songs. Let's keep these things in mind. Let's be aware of God's glory and God's goodness and his love for us that's been displayed through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. And if you have not yet sought him nor received him, I'd invite you to start today. I'd invite you to start today by, by asking Jesus Christ to, to come into your life, to be your savior, and to commit yourself to learning what it means to follow him and to seek him and to live for him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have come to reveal to us the glory of God hidden in ages past. I think of Moses who longed to see the glory that we get to see. I think of Elijah who longed to see the glory that we get to see. I think of Abraham as, as we read Jesus' own words. Abraham who, who looked forward to see the day when Jesus would come to the earth. Here we are. We've seen it. It already happened. And we are the beneficiaries of that. Jesus, help us seek you. Help us receive you. And to leave here today believing that God is. He's everything that we need. And that he has a plan for this world. As next week we look at creation. And there's a great need in this world as in two weeks we look at sin. But there's enormous hope for this world as we close this series in a couple of weeks talking about salvation. Help us to rest in you, the God who is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.